For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the conclusion to our week-long series on campaign finance and the governor's race. Meet one of the founders of Cyclovia and find out what next weekend's event could mean to our community. And I'll talk with Tucson journalist Margaret Regan, who followed one woman's journey through the Border Patrol detention system. These stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. All this week, Arizona Public Media's Christopher Conover and Zach Ziegler have been examining the campaign finance reports from candidates in the race for governor. They had to comb through hundreds of pages of data from candidates who raised more than $100,000, and there have been some interesting findings. Today, they wrap up their five-part series by answering some remaining questions and looking at the future of finance when running for office. Christopher Conover begins. We received an email from a listener earlier this week with a question. What about all that out-of-state money everyone hears about? So back into the data and spreadsheets we went for the three gubernatorial candidates who raised more than $100,000 in 2017. And that's one of the first things we actually looked at when we started this. We built an interactive map of donations by zip code. You can find that in a few of the stories we've done in this series. As for the answer... Here's what we know about out-of-state contributions from each candidate. Remember, these were numbers for the last three months of last year. Another batch is coming out next month. 12% of incumbent Doug Ducey's money is from out-of-state. David Garcia, 11%. As for state senator Steve Farley, around 5%. Those donations range from all over the U.S., but there are some hot spots. Residents of the Washington, D.C. area have given about $15,000 to this race, most of which went to Governor Doug Ducey. Sacramento and San Francisco Bay Area contributors have given $18,000 in the race. Most of that went to Democrat David Garcia. Democrat Steve Farley, we didn't find an out-of-state hotspot for him. In all, though, he picked up about $25,000. That's actually less than half of the out-of-state contributions for the other candidates. There's been around $400,000 contributed from out-of-state in the race as a whole, but that's divided among 800 out-of-state donors. Out-of-state money, though, is not all big money and max contributions. Yeah, there's a teacher in Chinook, Montana, up on the Canada border who gave David Garcia 25 bucks. And local teachers are also giving in this race. Given the amount of debate around education lately, including teacher protests this week in Arizona, it's not surprising that they're taking a political stance. And that stance has a strong Democratic lean, particularly towards David Garcia. This is one of the only areas where Ducey is being out-fundraised by both Democrats. But again, we should remind everyone that these numbers cover only the end of last year. So legislative action on education, something Governor Ducey and Senator Farley are involved in right now, won't come into play until possibly the reports due out next month. 
David Garcia has received nearly $17,000 from people who list their occupation as teacher, educator, or something else that indicates they're in education. Farley, the other Democrat, has received $3,600 from educators, and Ducey, $550. Joe Thomas is president of the Arizona Education Association and a former social studies teacher. He says those numbers are no surprise. Uh, teachers around the state, education support professionals around the state do not feel supported in the last four years, and I believe it's a reflection that they're looking for some change. The Arizona Education Association endorsed Garcia earlier this month. That endorsement came after this data was published. But Thomas says the data may show us why the organization ended up endorsing Garcia. I think that they see him as someone that understands public education, as someone that's going to champion public education, and that's what they need. Thomas says that when he was a teacher in Mesa, he didn't remember there being an overwhelming lean in any political direction for his co-workers. But the donation trend we see here follows a national trend. The Center for Responsive Politics, Sheila Crumholz, says people in education tend to give Democratic. That is public education, uh, for-profit education interests favor Republican candidates and parties heavily. That can be seen when looking at employees of Phoenix-based Grand Canyon University, which is still a for-profit school despite multiple attempts by school officials to turn non-profit. People who listed GCU as their employer gave Ducey nearly $15,000. That compares to $35 for Garcia and none for Farley. The Democrats fared much better with the state's public universities. Farley raised $18,000, mostly from University of Arizona employees. Garcia, $5,500, and Ducey, $500. It should be noted that those contributions were university employees, not the institutions. That would be illegal. Another trend among the two Democrat candidates is repeating donations. We see the same name pop up in the reports with the same donation on the same day of each month. This is actually something that we first spotted in looking at campaign finance data in 2012, specifically from President Barack Obama's re-election campaign in Arizona. It turned out these are scheduled and occurred on a certain day of each month for a certain amount. Yeah, think the auto bill pay that banks offer or the sustaining memberships that public radio and television stations talk about. Those automatic payments are often now set up via the web. But digital is more than just repeating contributions. Democratic consultant Andy Barr says it's becoming a larger part of the entire fundraising operation. Rules that made a lot of sense in terms of how campaigns govern their spending in 2012 don't make sense now. The percentage of budgets going towards digital and other non-traditional forms of communication are doubling on a lot of races this cycle. In the last quarter of 2017, the three campaigns spent a combined $35,000 on website design and other IT services. The digital world for campaigns is more than just websites and ads on the internet. It's also the social network. Throughout the week, we've heard big donors and campaign consultants talk about the importance of social networks when it comes to fundraising. Dr. Yotam Shmargad in the University of Arizona School of Information looked at the correlation between retweets on Twitter and election results across the country during the 2016 congressional campaign season. And what we found is that the key to overcoming financial difficulty as a congressional candidate is to get retweeted often by 
popular users. Those are users who are often retweeted and have their tweets often liked. But how much of a difference can that really make? So these endorsements from popular users, candidates that can get those, can close the gap by somewhere along two to three points for every one point increase in the average uh, retweets or favorites that they're retweeters are getting. Dr. Schmargod says in 2016, two congressional candidates in Florida, one Democrat and one Republican, looked to have won their races this way despite having less money than their opponents. But he's clear about one thing. Money still very much matters. The ideal thing is to try to close the, the financial gap. And one last thought on fundraising and campaigns from the two donors we talked to. First, Bruce Dusenberry. At the end of the day, it's voting that counts. And be sure you're educated on the issue so you're voting correctly. And Bill Ossenmacher. If people don't know who they are going to vote for and why, they shouldn't vote. And likewise, you know, when I get a, a, a ballot, if I don't know a judge or anything about him, I'm not going to vote just because I, I think it's a popular name or he's got an RRD. Because come election day, it's votes, not dollars, that get counted. That was Christopher Conover and Zach Ziegler. If you missed any of their five-part series on campaign fundraising, you can find them on our website at news.azpm.org, along with interactive maps and graphs based on the data that made up this series. Tucson is getting ready to celebrate the annual Cyclovia event next Sunday, April 8th. Two and a half miles of Midtown City streets will be off-limits to cars and other motorized vehicles, but open to pedestrians, bicyclists, artists, and other users. Next, Tony Paniagua speaks to a former official from Colombia, where the idea of Cyclovia began. He'll be visiting Tucson for a free talk later this week. Guillermo Peñalosa grew up in Bogotá, Colombia, where the concept of designating streets for bicycle and pedestrian use first began in the 1970s. In Spanish, it is called ciclovía, or cycleway, in English. Later, when Peñalosa became a commissioner of parks, sports, and recreation in Bogotá, he and his team expanded the ciclovía program. It is held every Sunday of the year. I was um, the founder of the new Ciclovia. When I became commissioner, there was one. It existed. It had existed for a few years, but it was dying off. And, and it was about a few miles and a few thousand people. And then I made it into uh, a much, much larger one with lots of more activities and over 1.7 million people coming out every, every Sunday. And actually, my inspiration was Central Park. Uh, I, I was reading about the, how it was created. Fred Olmsted, Olmsted did most of the nice large parks in North America. And he said that in New York, everybody hated everybody, the locals and the immigrants, the blacks and the white, the rich and the poor. And he said, you know, people don't know each other. People don't live in the same buildings. The, the children don't go to the same schools. We need to create places where people can meet each other as equals. And that was my inspiration. The more that I thought about Central Park, the more that I thought that any city of any size could have its own Central Park, at least from the point of view of social integration and physical activity. So that was the idea, how to create those streets where people could walk and bike and skate and run, and more than anything, enjoy the presence of each other. 
Since that job in Colombia, Peñalosa has migrated to Canada. He runs his own international consulting firm that encourages healthier and more vibrant cities by providing transportation options such as walking and riding bicycles. In previous decades, he says, most cities were concentrating on cars, not people. For example, we, we are killing people all the time. By Drivers are killing people walking. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Most of them are older adults and are children. So in many cases, they crosswalks in the intersections. The crosswalks, they were not putting, we're not leaving enough time. We're not making a, creating an island so that if children or older adults cannot walk in one traffic light, they can wait and, and do it in two or three. The reality is that most of the cities that we have done in the last 40 are pretty horrible from the point of view of economic sustainability, uh, health sustainability, environmental sustainability. In addition to his consulting company, Peñalosa is also the founder and chair of 880 Cities, a nonprofit organization. The numbers come from a question he likes to ask city leaders, planners, and residents. How would an eight-year-old get around in your community? What about an 80-year-old who cannot drive? It's a simple but powerful concept. It's what if everything that we did in our cities the sidewalk, the crosswalk, the parks, the schools, the buildings, the libraries, everything had to be great for an 8-year-old and for an 80-year-old. Not 8 to 80, but 8 and 80 as an indicator species. Because if it's good for the 8 and the 80, it's going to be good for everybody from 0 to over 100. We need to stop building cities as if everybody was 30-year-old and athletic. Peñalosa has visited more than 300 cities, and Tucson is being added to the list for the first time ever. He'll visit the Old Pueblo for a free presentation at the Rialto Theater Thursday evening, ahead of the Cyclovia event three days later. He says he's looking forward to bringing his message to this community. How to create a city, a vibrant city, with healthy communities where people are going to live happier. So it's going to focus on, on these topics. Part of it is going to be sustainable mobility. So what we were talking about, walking and riding bicycles, using public transit, new uses of cars, as well as the public spaces, the parks, the streets, the sidewalks. Uh, in the, in, for example, in parks, how to make sure that they are successful? Uh, what is the role of management? What is the role of the community? Uh, how to make sure that we have uses and activities? Sometimes I find that in the cities, it seems easier to find the millions to do the park than to find the thousands to make them work. But if we don't have the thousands to do the movie nights and the busker festivals and uh, the, the, uh, the games and walking groups and knitting groups and reading and so on, they, they are not going to click. So those are some of the things that I'm going to be talking about. Peñalosa says these issues are urgent because cities worldwide are set to gain more than 3 billion new inhabitants in the next few decades. Fortunately, he says, positive transformations are possible and many changes are being led by younger generations. For example, millions of millennials are moving into urban centers and choosing not to have cars. They want more walkable, sustainable cities, an idea which Peñalosa has been advocating for much of his life. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Tucson's Cyclovia is being organized by Living Streets Alliance. The community is invited to attend the Sunday, April 8th event. It spans from the Lost Barrio Block Party on the west end to Hemel Park on the east. 
Organizers say space will be limited for Gil Penalosa's free public talk on the evening of Thursday, April 5th at the Rialto Theater. They encourage reserving a seat in advance at livingstreetsalliance.org. When we hear stories about the border, the image of a remote desert landscape usually comes to mind. But the Border Patrol is also active in many cities, including Tucson. Next, we'll hear about one woman's journey from a routine traffic stop near Elkhorn Mall to an extended stay in the Border Patrol detention facility in Eloy. Journalist Margaret Regan has been writing about immigration since she began reporting for the Tucson Weekly in 1990. She's published two books on the subject, The Death of Jocelyn, Immigration Stories from the Arizona-Mexico Borderlands in 2010, and Detained and Deported, Stories of Immigrant Families Under Fire in 2015. I asked Margaret Regan for an interview after reading an article she wrote for Edible Baja Arizona magazine. It was about the food that served to Border Patrol detainees. The article was called Detained and Deprived. Here's Margaret Regan. If you get stopped today and you're an undocumented immigrant, you always have the choice of saying, okay, deport me, and you can sign a document saying deport me, and you'll be deported within a couple of days. And many immigrants have told me that the Border Patrol strongly encourages them to do that and to sign those documents. But it's pretty widely known that you shouldn't sign anything without knowing what's going on and what your rights are. So if you're picked up on an immigration violation and the Border Patrol believes with the documentation that you have that you're here outside the law, you will go to, well, anybody will go to the Border Patrol um, station for several days, even those who are going to be deported quickly because you have to be processed. So uh, the woman in my story picked up for a traffic violation. She's coming out of one of the movie uh, one of those she big malls. picking up her son one night after he, he was 14 years old. Right. And you know how that is, you know, those malls and the traffic. She pulled out onto Broadway. She was confused. And she's like, ah, I'm going in the wrong direction to get to my house. So she did a U-turn on Broadway. A cop came and the cop talked her, you know, under SB 1070. A cop can ask for your documents if he or she believes that you might be here unlawfully. And she provided the only documentation she had, which was a Mexican passport. So he set the motion in place. Uh, He called um, the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol got there very quickly. She had her two kids in the car. There was the 14-year-old and the other boy, I think, was 10 or 11. They took the kids away from her. They took her away from them. And she called her sister to come and get the kids, but they didn't even wait to take her away until the sister came there. So her children were left with the Tucson police officer, somebody they didn't even know. She's taken down. This is like one of the sweetest, kindest, caring uh, young women I have met. She was a housewife, you know, very devoted to her husband and her two boys. Very um, polite and very well-spoken. 
She gets taken down to the Border Patrol headquarters and she's treated horribly. And, you know, I'm sure there are some Border Patrol agents that have a conscience about this and try to act um, in a fair way to people. But as I said, she was sort of a delicate sensibility and they were calling her a whore. Had she ever had trouble with the law before or been incarcerated? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, her, her violation here was having crossed the border many years ago. Her children are U.S. citizens. This is the case of a lot of immigrants in the United States right now. They've made a life for many years here. And the Border Patrol um, station is under um, you're undergoing a lawsuit still um, filed by many different people because of the atrocious conditions. Um, and this is very typical of Border Patrol stations around the country. They're meant for short-term detentions. You know, that you're just supposed to be there for two or three days while you get processed. But because of that, Border Patrol doesn't feel like spending the money to um, have beds or showers or any kind of decent food. While they're there, they're subject to extremely cold temperatures. I have told this time and time again, Border Patrol denies it. They take away people's jackets. And a lot of times, like this woman, uh, Luz Maria, caught in the summertime, she didn't have much on, maybe shorts and sandals and a little top. You get in there and the temperatures are quite low. They don't give you blankets, they don't give you beds. And the pictures that I saw filed in the lawsuit and which the judge said that these, having seen those photos before rulings were even made, the judge said these are inhumane conditions. They're human feces on the wall, you know, filthy bathrooms, very inadequate food, especially when they have children in there. Um, But so uh, Luz Maria was a typical case. She was there for a night or two and then she was sent to the Eloy Detention Center. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's the big house. You know, the Border Patrol is temporary. It's really horrible conditions, but at least it's temporary. You go to Eloy and you can be there for years. I met one man in the course of my reporting who has been had been in detention for seven years in different detention centers. So just to clarify, the place that we were talking about the first time mm-hmm. was here in Tucson. Yes. Yeah. When you say the Border Patrol, people think, oh, well, this is miles away. But where is the facility located in Tucson? Oh, it's at uh, Swan and Golf Links. You can drive down there. I mean, you can actually drive in and go into the front office if you care to. I've been down there a lot of times for um, press conferences, but I've never gotten a tour of it myself. I only have the accounts of people I've spoken to and the many photos that were um, provided for the lawsuit. So Luz Maria is transferred to Eloy. What greets her there? What is the experience in her first 24 hours? They get a medical exam, and they're allowed to take a shower. They haven't had a shower in some time. Um, They're given a uniform to wear. They're assigned a cell. And the thing I was writing about for Edible Baja last summer was, of course, uh, food. And the food is horrible there. I have heard this for years and years and years from people. I remember interviewing this very devout Christian woman there one time. She'd been in for three years, and she said, God help me, I'm a Christian. I don't believe we should waste food, but I cannot eat it. Um, Well, as I described in the story, what was it, the three Ps, papas, pan, and pasta. You know, potatoes, bread, and pasta. That's what they get. They don't get fresh vegetables. They don't get fresh fruits. They get a lot of mystery meats like you might have experienced possibly when you were in high school. (laughs) One of the things um, several women told me was that there's often worms in the oatmeal. 
The coffee is undrinkable. The eggs are usually powdered eggs. I never got a chance to eat there, and I tried to get in when I was doing that story to have a meal. They wouldn't let me anywhere near the place. If you're eating just that high-carb diet with no real nutrients, you know, no vitamins, no fresh foods, you just sort of start feeling lousy. You know, people start having gastrointestinal struggles. Another woman in that that I interviewed for that story who was in the detention center for quite a long time, she was very sick when she got out. She could not adjust to regular food. She said every time she tried to eat a meal, she would have a bad case of diarrhea. And it took her, her whole system a while to adjust to being back there. So let's go back to the woman that we're calling Luz Maria, who was the center of your article. How long did she ultimately spend at that facility? I think it was just a couple of months in her case. And she doesn't really know what happened because um, she and her husband had hired an attorney. You know, Immigrants are extremely vulnerable. And there are a lot of uh, notaries public who advertise that they're they can help you with your immigration papers, and people who don't know the legal system yeah. can be taken in by that and waste their money. I think anyone in Tucson has seen those advertisements, if not in print, on bus stops. Yeah. But so she had, I think, a bad situation with a lawyer, but then she suddenly was released, and she really didn't know why. But she was put on this program where you have to do check-ins with ICE. You've probably read there have been a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention to these cases in the news since uh, Trump came into the presidency because people under Obama, they had this policy, and it was not always followed. Certainly, Obama deported a lot of worthy individuals and parents and separated them from children. But under Trump, we've abandoned the policy that a nice mom, you know, like that, who just has been at home with her kids— um, should not be deported and as long as she checks into ICE. So there were a lot of people in that situation. And so she was one of those people. She was allowed out of Eloy to go back to her family, but she had to do these check-ins. And she was fearful once Trump came into power. And so um, she basically has vanished. You know, she has not. she's not doing the check-ins. I don't know where she is. She just decided, and I guess in... And her family is also missing right now. Or I suppose they're all the they're all together somewhere, but they're not telling people where mm-hmm. they are. So um, fewer arrests on the border, but a big jump in arrests in the interior. We have ICE all over the United States being very aggressive, and the arrests in the interior are up forty-two percent since Trump came into power. And we've been seeing a lot of these cases in the news. They're the kind of people that I wrote about in my book. Men and women who've been here, maybe since they were kids, since they were teenagers, have lived here for a long time, have children, some of them have grandchildren, most of them, by and large, not having gotten in any kind of trouble other than their immigration violation. And we're seeing a huge uptick in arrests of those people. My guest was Margaret Regan. We discussed a story she wrote about at length in her book, Detained and Deported, Stories of Immigrant Families Under Fire, published in 2015 by Beacon Press. There's a link to Detained and Deprived, her article focusing on the food that served in Border Patrol detention on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico, 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.